Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and with me this week, we have Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And a returning special guest, Mail Plus columnist Charlie Peters. Hey, Fraser. Coming up on the show, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the end of COVID restrictions and trans women in women's sports. So this has been um, an incredibly serious week for the Ukraine crisis. Uh, Vladimir Putin has officially declared war. He's been invading Ukraine from all sides. This is an enormous escalation. I mean, just to recap a little bit, we started the week with a crazed speech from Putin where he essentially denied that Ukraine was a proper country. He then recognised the independence of two of the breakaway regions in the Donbass. Then he sent troops into those regions. And now things have gone even further to a full-on invasion well beyond those disputed territories. Ella, what have you made of this escalation? Well, I think it's really important to say that it has taken people by surprise. And I know that in previous podcasts, we were talking about the fact that Western media had, you know, rolling coverage of Kiev and um, was kind of putting dates and times to when it was supposed to happen. And I think the flippancy around that shows that people weren't prepared for this unprecedented move by, well, I mean, maybe you could quibble the, the word unprecedented, but certainly a surprising move by Putin because it is so extreme. Um, and it does feel like in the uh, last week he has, re- it, it's catalyzed and also he's reacted to, I think, a um, growing tension, or you could argue that I think he's been put into a, a kind of a dangerous corner. And ha- instead of going down the route of diplomacy, instead of being reasonable. He has denied the um, sovereignty of Ukraine. He's destroyed the concept of its borders. It's, he's now killing its people. Um, there have been fatalities. He's bombing um, places in Kiev, military positions and things like this is looking really grim. And rather than uh, this being something that has any kind of clear cut answer to it, mm. I think Putin is very much playing on the fact that he knows that it's taken the West by surprise. Um, I think he's, as one kind of BBC correspondent said uh, in the early morning coverage this morning, um, rather he knows he was going to be sanctioned. He knows there was going to be some kind of repercussion. And so he's kind of gone in for a penny and for a pound. Rather than just sticking to these breakaway regions in the Donbass, he's decided to go whole hog. And the repercussions of his actions are going to be terrible for people in Ukraine, not just because of death and destruction of what comes with warfare, but also the long-standing um and stability of what's happening here and the fu- you know what future does ukraine have either under the threat of um russian influence both militarily and politically but also being pulled to and fro between um global powers is no mm. no good for ukrainian citizens charlie i mean this move strikes a lot of people as actually quite irrational in terms of um russia's core interests mm-hmm. i mean you know, there there is obviously going to be quite a large backlash from the West. Russia will be cut off um, from, you know, much of the world as as a result of this, and it certainly doesn't um, help his case 
that um, NATO is the warmonger or yes, you, no. <laughs> if you say what I mean or that bit's or, damaged uh, yeah <laughs> and and even and even the very fact that you know NATO is not going to scale back after this certainly sure, no uh, no you're absolutely right I think uh, it's done him no favors in that particular interest but also um, the West won't like it but there'll also be a backlash within his own country mm. I mean not everyone in Russia abides by the views of Vladimir Putin especially when it comes to foreign policy interesting interestingly as you go younger you find more people being supportive of invasions into um, those countries of the former kind of Soviet mm. power. But I mean, for some people thought it was a ginormous surprise, but I mean, my only New Year's prediction back in December was that there'd be a ground war in Europe um, from Putin into Ukraine. Many of uh, the kind of super forecasters and foreign policy specialists thought this was highly likely, especially after he gathered over a hundred battle groups on the border. Um, but unfortunately, many of those warnings weren't heeded and the response from the West has been we, mm. from top to bottom. Um, they have a, a comedian in charge of their country who didn't bother to mobilise the army even as the invasion had started. Reservists weren't called up until yesterday when there were already Russian troops in the country. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of kind of speak strongly but carrying a weak stick from the West. I mean, pressures of sanctions and threats of, you know, kicking children out of schools and yeah. getting rid of uh, Russian money from the city. That's not going to deter someone who runs a country which is struggling economically and a strong man who relies on foreign policy to cement his rule. Mm. Um, if he was in a richer country, which had been more approached and appreciated by the West, perhaps he wouldn't have seen this, but it's struggling economically and he has to lash out violently to secure his reign. Yeah. I, I think also I wanted to pick up on something you've uh, talked about there, which is the the kind of the emptiness of the the Western threats, because there was always these mixed messages. On the one hand, you know, we were kind of ramping up the tensions, saying how hard Putin is going to get it when he rolls the tanks in. But on the other hand, everyone knew deep down that Ukraine is not a NATO country. We're not going to defend it militarily. And the limit of our response was only going to be sanctions. I mean, in a sense, that's the worst of both worlds, isn't it, Ella? I mean, there's, there's no, there's not even a diplomatic way out of that. Yeah, well, but some people have described it as giving Ukraine false hope mm. in the fact that there was this suggestion, you know, you have people like Liz Truss, Ben Wallace coming out and saying, oh, you know, we're going to basically, we're going to whip them. It's like schoolboy kind of mm -hmm. dis classroom kind of language of um, not just saber rattling, this kind of really um, infantilized version of um, of kind of hawkish warmongering, which has, I mean, you mentioned on Twitter earlier today that in terms of the material resources that the British military has at its disposal, it's incredibly limited. Mm. Now, I think that even if we did have a beefed up army, I wouldn't want that to be utilised um, in the way of threatening Western intervention because you can't, two wrongs against sovereignty don't make a right. And as we've said previously on this podcast in relation to Afghanistan, in relation to Libya, in relation to many the, um, scenarios in which the West has got itself embroiled, there is no such thing as a free lunch or a free intervention. Um, when it comes to international politics, the West always wants to have some kind of influence in the same way that Russia does. But the the hollowness of the way in which international politics is now done, either, you know, Biden in America giving these kind of just empty slogan kind of uh, uh, 
speeches saying things like, well, we're going to do something endlessly day after day saying we're going to do something. Swift, severe, united, that kind of And uh, never, ne- never either saying whether it's a sanction, whether it's a, tr- not, never giving any material detail. And that's really unfair for um, Ukraine because they're, they are being torn between, this is a kind of a, a, I don't know that you can quite say it's a proxy war just yet, but it's quite clear that it's got not very little to do with Ukra- the Ukrainian government and its citizens itself, but it's more to do with a kind of a much bigger macro issue of the of Russia feeling threatened by the West. And I think the way in which Western politicians have used this conflict as the potential for this conflict as a kind of playground to grandstand is really quite despicable. Charlie, you've been very critical, especially of the kind of virtue signaling, I guess you could call it, you know, it's, it's an odd thing to say about politicians on the right, because that's normally, we, we say that about leftists and woke types. It's a sort of fake patriotic chest thumping about how great and victorious and brilliant we are mm. as, a, as a global and regional power. But the fact of the matter remains that since the invasion of Crimea in 2014, we have become leaner, weaker, smaller as a military force. Meanwhile, Russia has been steadily building up this ginormous military. So we're not going to smack them on the bum or whatever it was that no. Ben Defence well, Secretary well, ben, said. Ben Wallace used to belong to the Scots Guards, who fought in Crimea, as it were, um, in 1853, where they were part of a force that defeated a Russian force. And he said, oh, we can do it again. I mean, the Scots Guards today is the most critically undermanned unit in the British Army. It has a full operational strength of 604 currently barely has about 350 people in it. Mm. Um, Many of those soldiers, for what it's worth, aren't even fully British. They're Fijians on loan, as it were. Um, And so there is no sense whatsoever that this tiny, what we are, is barely a regional fighting force could compete with Russia on that scale. And it feels like we are destined and desperate to fail to learn from any of the geopolitical lessons we should have learned over the last decade. Interventions not happening. Mm. And then even there are some comparisons here with Syria. Yeah. All these red lines, you can't, if you cross this, we will act on all these vapid statements of the threats that we're going to give to a different regime. Well, they crossed the lines and we've done nothing. Isn't the other aspect of this that um, Russia will have seen um, uh, where we have intervened and watch those things unravel? And if you think back to Afghanistan, I mean, that seems to be the disastrous withdrawal from there seemed to really indicate um, a West that is in deep, deep trouble. And that potentially could embolden Putin, you know, the, that's a, a, an opportunist leader like him, spies something in Western weakness. Uh, absolutely. He also, uh, I think, realises that there is an opportunity to do what he's doing in terms of overriding Ukrainian sovereignty in a context in which the, and this isn't saying, this isn't going down the kind of stop the war coalition route of, oh, it's mm. all the West's fault, it's all NATO's fault. But it is true that you have had um, successive incidents and examples of Western democracies ram-raiding over other nations, intervening on the, in the pretext of humanitarian intervention or, you know, in in domestically, and not to bring everything back to Brexit, mm-hmm. themselves in their own, you know, whether it be in relation to the European Union, whether it's Brexit here, British politicians having no regard for sovereignty, having European politicians talking disparagingly about the concept of borders, about the yeah. concept of nations, about the importance of uh, having sort of structure to the sense of a nation state. And so in that context, it becomes less unique, less terrifyingly different for Russia to do what it's doing. That's not to, set, that's not to downplay the seriousness of what's happening, but it's to say that if you are 
in a context in which no one, Brendan makes this point in his piece in Spike this week, no one really can stand up in the West and say, we are real believers in democracy because everyone knows, and sovereignty, Mm. because everyone knows that you're not. Um, Then an autocrat like Putin, who has no respect for um, for any kind of genuine sense of of populism or of kind of sovereignty, can come along and do what he's doing. I think just one other point is that Charlie's really made an important um, link to bringing up the idea of history repeating itself with Wallace's comments around the Crimean War, mm. which is that you know to a certain extent Putin is stuck in the past a little bit. He has. Um, completely disavowed the idea that the last you know few decades of ukrainian history mattered yeah he's suggesting that it is just has always been part of russia never mind all these elections that took place he blamed lenin for the whole yeah so that is true but it is also true that the west is stuck in a kind of um cold war even pre-cold war mindset of russia the russian bear as evil and the west as great the kind of white knight of the west and that can only lead to a kind of situation in which you continue to provoke the worst qualities. I mean, I'm not saying there are many good qualities, but the most dangerous qualities in Putin. And the fact that they are still blindly doing that with the kind of commentary that Charlie's described is, it's actually quite, not to be alarmist about it, but it is quite scary to think that there is seems to be no one in uh, European politics at the moment who has a handle on this situation. Charlie, your final thought. Well, yes, I think we have to appreciate that Putin is not a madman. He's not crazed. He's very deliberate and he wants this outcome. But at the same time, we have to appreciate the fact that we have set the conditions Mm. for this invasion. We have expanded NATO's sphere of influence onto former Russian sphere of influence. Mm. And when you do that and when you you poke that bear, it will swipe back. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Let's talk about the end of COVID restrictions. This week, the last of them is being taken away. It's no longer a legal requirement to self-isolate after you've tested positive for COVID. Mass testing, at least free mass testing, is going to be scaled back. Is it finally over, Charlie? Feels like it. Absolutely does. And it's one of those beautiful examples, I think, where we can see the culture and the mood being downstream of the politics Mm. as this change in the law has happened. I have delighted in seeing people shedding their masks on public transport, in bars and clubs, bars, everywhere. It's great. Yeah. It, feels, it feels free. And offices are starting get, getting busier as well, even though mm. this, link, this law has nothing to do with that. Um, Ella, what have you made of it? I mean, it does, in a sense, it feels a bit of an anticlimax. It's the other aspect to it. The thing is, it's how many Freedom Days have there been now, yeah. so <laughs> that it's a bit like it is anticlimactic, you think. Oh yeah, it's all gone off. And I was looking around the tube this morning and thinking, I mean, I haven't been wearing a mask for a while on the tube and I think lots, I've noticed that lots of people haven't. Um, but it's it's one of those times at which I think the zealots will get more zealous and the people who have for a while been thinking, okay, I'm done with this now, yeah. will just quietly be getting on with life and socialising and all those, those good things. But I think we'd be amiss to suggest that with the swipe of a legislative pen, normal life returns because Mm. there are some problems with what's happening. For example, yes, um, the restrictions in in the 
in the round might be gone and that's a very good thing. Um, but that's not necessary because Boris Johnson has had a kind of Damascene yeah. conversion and he's now never going to consider lockdown again. He's doing it to save his ass in relation to Partygate and potentially <laughs> Russia or whatever's going on at the moment. I'll take it. I'm yeah, not yeah. going to refuse it on the principle that it's not for the right reasons, but we have to bear that in mind for the future that I don't think these things are off the table for forever. But also there are still restrictions in place in relation to things like care home visits, mm. which is very serious. It's not just some subsection of society that hasn't caught up with the, with the rest of us. It is one of the places where restrictions have been most corrosive. Uh, and, you know, I, I think the government's mean-spirited to end free testing for um, people going into care homes and things like that because I think anything you can do to facilitate normal life coming back in those places without the rigmarole of PPE and all that sort of stuff that makes it hellish is important. So there's a point to be made about the government continuing to deprioritise the elderly I think in general, though, you'd be a bit scroogey to not say that it's a good thing. You know, yeah. the sun is coming out, spring is coming back. There is some kind of a mood in the air. The other aspect to it um, is, of course, when if you're ill with COVID, you're going to self-isolate. I mean, that's a normal thing to do. That's normally what people do when they're ill. I suppose the only change here is that you're not being compelled to do so with the threat potentially of a £10,000 fine. Now, everyone who's on Indie Sage or um, even some of the more uh, mainstream scientists will have been saying that this is outrageous, that this, you know, to, this is a rush towards libertarianism or something like that. I mean, Charlie, if we just lost the f distinction between, you know, if we, if we just lost sight of the fact that we don't have to order everyone to do what we like by law. We've lost the sight of acceptable risk, that's for sure. And a rush to libertarianism. I mean, don't get me excited. That would be a, <laughs> that would be a delight when it comes to the COVID world. Um, yeah, we we certainly have. There's no doubt about it. And I think we need to we need to absolutely learn to appreciate the level of risk that we can tolerate here mm. is extremely high. Um, as the death rates have plummeted and hospitalization hospitalization rates have also hit the ground, we can see that this new variant has exceeded the level where. It is essentially no worse for you than a common cold mm. for the vast majority of people. And we wouldn't have a government requirement, I should hope, for yeah. the flu, that you have to stay at home for 10 days if you have a cough. So I think we should just embrace that this could be the same kind of approach. But I think Ella's right to note that there is this kind of nefarious niggle of some people who will keep the culture war around COVID going, mm. who will um, publicly and on social media um, kind of berate those who don't choose to continue to self-isolate out of their own volition. Um, but a whole week of staying indoors because you have a cold that won't hurt people. We definitely didn't think about that before 2020 yeah. and we shouldn't now. Although perhaps people are, you know, shedding their fear of COVID, the broader culture of fear, if you want, uh, if you want to give it that word, um, seems to be alive and well. Often, you know, the sense of anxiety is quite free floating and attaches itself to other things. So um, people will have seen in the mirror um, this map of where's going to get hit by nuclear war if, uh, <laughs> yeah. if Russia attacks us. So uh, it, do we not have a, a task ahead of us of just challenging fear and fear-mongering generally, even after COVID is, is no longer an issue? Yeah, well, I think individually, but also at a state level, I mean, the um, government, in, the government in Wales and the government in, in Britain, lots of different councils released stay-at-home orders in relation to Storm Eunice and mm. Storm Dudley. And, you know, storms well, are serious gu things. Guidance, guidance. It, yeah, guidance. Yeah, it was not, not orders. But I mean, 
shutting down all the trains and Mm. yes okay lots of bad stuff happened and lots of trees came down on people's cars and things like that but just the immediacy of of going to such extreme guidance (laughs) was quite remarkable for let's face it British weather I mean um, I think those kind of trends are going to keep rearing their ugly head which is why it's very tempting at the moment to say it's it's done with I don't ever want to talk about covered again mm. please let's not have another flipping government inquiry about it that says nothing i don't <laughs> want to read it however we know that we now know things that we didn't know at the start so lot of the problem wasn't necessarily ho- the prospect of hospitalizations although that was very serious but it was the prospect of there not being enough places in hospital for people mm. and hospitals mm. not being able to cope and therefore people dying because they couldn't get breathing support and things like that well, the answer is let's build some more hospitals right. or let's use those nightingale yeah. hospitals. Do it now because the you know the potential in in our lifetimes for this to happen again is yeah. not insignificant and we don't want to go through the last two years again. So put in place the infrastructure in society to deal with this. And so and also to be able to look at the social trends that you're right, not just about fear, but also about this sense of people feeling vulnerable mm. and and what that does to a society's ability to socialize and integrate with one another because if we are going to get to the position in which we constantly feel at threat from weather nuclear war um viruses whatever it is we w- we'll be unwilling to go outside of our comfort zones more and that will have a bad effect on all kinds of things, creativity, sociality, spontaneity. And I think we have to be able to overcome that individually in ourselves as well as at a political level. And finally, Charlie, I mean, the news is obviously going to move on from COVID. I mean, thank God. I hope we still don't get those uh, daily updates on BBC News every day. I'm sure mm. I'm sure they'll keep it up for a little Although bit. Although because it's going down, I wish they would now. But the harms of lockdown and some of the things that, some of the measures that we've put in place over the past few years are going to, still be with people um and it doesn't feel like it it almost feels like that is not being addressed to anywhere near the extent it should be yeah there are huge elements of the entire COVID response that will not get the level of spotlight treatment that they absolutely need first and foremost is actually um this this kind of discussion we're having about the lack of tolerance for risk Mm. that mostly stemmed from what was a very severe fear campaign launched by the government after they thought that not enough people were taking the virus seriously enough. We saw it. Actually, ordinary people weren't massively bothered about what was facing them until the government started putting up those posters of, if you go outside, you'll kill someone. This was extremely damaging and quite risible messaging. This needs to be put under the spotlight. The extent to which the government can put us under a scientifically aggressive and often I would say downright authoritarian. The nudge unit and yeah, behavioural science. Yeah, yeah. All, all these people and all of this kind of work needs to be properly assessed so that we're not put under that pressure again, falsely, falsely and you know, under fake presumptions. I think it's probably going to be worked, reworked for net zero, I think is the more Absolutely. likely outcome. Um, it's happening already for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's move on to our final story. Uh, Leah Thomas, a transgender swimmer, has smashed numerous records at the Ivy League Women's Swimming and Diving Championship. Now, this is um, a a woman who's transitioned from being male. Um, As a male athlete, Will Thomas uh, was ranked number 462 in uh, in terms of college swimmers. As a female athlete, she's ranked number one. Ella, is this a tale of triumph of adversity over the odds or is something else? 
going on here? Look, this isn't just, it's, it's, you laugh because when you watch the footage of that race, it is remarkable yeah. because it is someone with a body who is taller and bigger and musclier and six foot four. Yeah. Remarkably stronger than any of the other women in the pool, any of the women in the pool. And it is just patently unfair. I mean, it sounds cliche now. It's become, thankfully, so many people have pointed out how unfair it is that it mm. sounds cliche to say it as unfair. And yet um, official sporting bodies are still maintaining that this is acceptable. And the funny thing is that it it really, the, black, the kind of short-sightedness of the consequences for allowing someone like Leah Thomas to beat women who have trained for years mm. and given up their lives to try and have this kind of space in which they would have a fair shot at being a champion. Um, the short-sightedness of this, I think they haven't realised because... The reason we have women and men's sports is because we understand that bodies are different. The reason we have Paralympics mm. and the Olympics is because we understand that if you threw a swimmer with one arm into a race with a bunch of swimmers with both arms, it's quite obvious who would win. Yeah. And the sheer scale of the difference between your average woman, even like, you know, this chunky person like me and Leah Thomas, is just, it, you. it's mind boggling. Mm. And the only thing I can think of is that there is a fear among sporting bodies that they will be called transphobic if yeah. they uh, deny that this is any kind of reality that's sustainable. And I think, you know, Leah Thomas is just someone who, whether opportunistically, whether whatever, whether it's just an individual who's trying to get along, I'm sure is very passionate about the sport and, you know, it's not necessarily about her it is about the cowardice involved in sport that cannot stand up and say, and when it grandstands on doping and all sorts of other things, cannot stand up and say, this is not fair, this shouldn't be allowed to happen. Charlie, I mean, this women's sport is finished, essentially, if this is allowed to go on. That's precisely what I was about to say. This is the end of women's sport if mm. uh, this approach to attendance and participation is continued. I mean, I thought that this level of infiltration, that's essentially what it is, wouldn't happen after the weightlifting debacle at the Olympics. Yeah. You know, I thought with the number of athletes, unfortunately, I would say quite cowardly, not answering questions about that person's involvement. Laurel Hubbard. Yeah. I thought that was disappointing. I thought that was an opportunity to say, now this is the biggest stage of sport and you're letting this happen mm. and how are we meant to compete at that level? Um, but they didn't. None of the sporting bodies did. It was just a few basically people on Twitter and the occasional... Um, a columnist in the Times or whatever, but nobody actually really wanted to take that full throttle. Now it's happening on a way more egregious scale yeah. at a much smaller stage. You know, this is university swimming. Yeah. It's bigger in the States than it is here for sure, but it's not exactly, you know, the Premier League or whatever. Mm. Even then, we are now finally seeing some sort of reaction, but way overdue, long overdue. I mean, it's, it's worth thinking back to the kind of Laurel Hubbard debacle, you know, in that, that Summer Olympics where... The BBC wrote like multi, maybe a 3,000, 4,000 word, you know, gushing, mm. praising piece about Laurel Hubbard beating the odds, you know, suddenly finding herself in, in, in this sport when really, you know, she's actually pretty third rate. Anyway, even against biological women, she didn't do that well. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so it's good to see, I suppose, the tide is turning in a sense. Yeah, well, yeah, Charlie's right to say that it's long overdue, but it's, I think it's because 
you have to realize how serious the threat of being called a transphobe mm. is for people. It's like when people call you a racist and right. you're not a racist. It's 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 a horrible thing to be called. It's yeah. a bigoted thing to be called. And the fact that it is just thrown around so loosely makes people very afraid. And if you are a young um, you know, athlete who's trying to make a bit of a name for yourself as well as um compete in your sport, you're going to be very aware that you're on a kind of public stage, mm. particularly on social media in which people are not forgiving of the kind of com the kind of comments you made. But the fact that there has been this basically institutional capture at the level of sporting bodies, that we've seen it in other institutions like universities, like at the BBC, the influence of groups like Stonewall lobbying groups, who have basically made a created a situation in which any discussion of not just trans rights versus women rights and all the, that mess of that route, but just about biological reality yeah. in the place where biological reality matters, sport. Mm. It doesn't matter in lots of other areas of life, but it matters in sport. Um, the fact that there has been, it, there's been a kibosh on not just any debate on it, but any discussion of it yeah. shows you how censorious the, the, the nature of this has become. And I think how afraid people are to speak out because once you do speak out, you are basically either attacking Leah Thomas personally mm. or you are being a, tra a bigoted transfer, which no one wants to be. And so I think tackling that kind of basically calling out the emperor and saying that he has no clothes is yeah. the first step to then getting to a place in which we are not turning over, as Charlie points out, loads of women's lives mm. on the basis of one individual. I think yeah. also that balance needs to be addressed. And and finally, I mean, we saw at the Winter Olympics, um, figure skater, young um, Russian figure skater was widely lambasted as, you know, Russian drug cheat for taking some angina medicine last year at some point. Um, what do you make of the contrast between that, what is by all accounts quite a minor um, doping infraction and probably certainly not something that could make you into a brilliant figure skater mm -hmm. and... Leah Thomas, where this is within the rules, this massive advantage is is okay and probably something we're supposed to all praise. Well, yeah, I think you know, Ella touched on that comparison in her first response on this whole issue that you know, there is a wild flap over doping, which mm. is often quite justified. I think we've had some very dirty Olympic Games recently, a number of events. Um, and then of course, yeah, as you point out, this essentially superhuman ability you get by being the wrong biological sex yeah. in the wrong category. Uh, you're right. I mean, it is, no analogy is perfect. And in sporting, that's definitely true. But this is, for all intents and purposes, cheating. Mm. This is um, more cheating in, in Leah Thomas's case than someone taking some medicine over a year ago at the age of 14 and 15, which will have a possibly negligible effect on their performance as a, as a skater. Um, but, you know, just to touch on what Ella just said there before, perhaps I was quite strong when I said that they were cowardly under the nation's international spotlight for saying that. But I, no, I think I, you have a point. I, yeah, I, I, I would stand by, I would stand by. Yeah. But at the same time, you're right to raise that people do go to jail for saying transphobic <laughs> things. Yeah. It is a crime. And so, yeah. um, but if they're not going to set, I mean, they are icons of sport. They are people who inspire young girls to do this kind of stuff. If they're not going to say it, who is? Yeah. If, if you, if you want to be untouchable and create a new trend and actually push past finally what I think is hopefully peak woke at this level where we have men swimming and women's competitions. If we are going to push past that, it's going to take powerful, influential, non-political people to stand up and say, this is wrong. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.